the thing that's really tricky is that there's only so much that people can do individually. And so to me, the community level really comes in when people can support one another in getting this work done. I mean, we're all interdependent. One thing that I've seen has been very effective is, you know, community groups forming. And these community groups are getting together and they're talking about how to reach how to reach landowners and how to make sure people hear about grant opportunities and improving communication with fire response agencies and public entities. Um, and those groups, I think, are, are really interesting to me because, again, it's about organizing communities to get these resources to where they need to go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life of Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and we have a new episode for you today. Very exciting. We haven't had an episode yet in 2023. I think this is actually our first episode since mid-November, so thank you for your patience on this one. We have a really great guest today to kind of kick off this next season, if you can call it that. Uh, we spoke with Christopher Adlam who is the regional fire specialist for the Southwest region of the Oregon State University Fire Extension. I got a chance to talk to Chris in September while on a road trip through the Northwest in California. And it was the very end of my road trip, but I was really happy that I was able to connect with Chris. And he brought me up into an area just outside Ashland, Oregon, that had been burned uh, at some point in the last 10 to 15 years, I believe. It had also been thinned prior to being burned. And so we had our interview right next to this burn unit. It was really cool. Um, we did it outside. I had not actually ever done an in-person interview like this for the podcast. So I didn't have the mic set up as well as I could have. Uh, and also you just get all of the classic outside noises. You get a little bit of wind, you get some birds. We even had a hiker stop by and chat with us for a little bit. And that's around the 15 minute mark on the episode. So when you get to that part, you can just skip right through it. I actually kept it in because I thought it was a really cool example of engagement with uh, a community member and asking them kind of what they think of some of this fire use in this area what they think of this burn unit that we were standing next to, um, what they thought of the smoke last year when some of these units were being burned. So that was kind of a cool conversation. Uh, you get the whole thing, you know, introductions and all of this. So hope you enjoy that. I thought it was cute. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, we get a little bit of wind um, background noise in some spots. So I wouldn't strongly recommend listening to this with headphones, maybe better for the car or for, you know, Alexa to play while you're cooking dinner or something. I don't really know. But nonetheless, it might be a little wonky if you try to listen to it with headphones on. Uh, that's my disclaimer for this uh, for this episode. So otherwise, you know, Chris and I talked about a lot of great topics, a lot of prescient topics in the Northwest. Uh, we talked about community-based sort of resilience measures. We talked about individual resilience measures. We talked about how to sort of engage different demographics in these conversations, how to engage folks that live in areas that maybe haven't historically been um, super impacted by wildfires, for example, the west side of the Cascades. And then we also spoke a bit about the use of managed fire to get more fire on the landscape during wildfire incidents. So that's towards the end of our episode. And Chris had some really great insights in that area, especially regarding you know, engaging the community in those decision-making processes 
um, just informing people, keeping people sort of feeling empowered about what's going on on their on their land. And so we ended on that note, and I think that's a really important conversation that we do need to be having, even if it feels a little taboo sometimes. So stick around for that part of our conversation. It's towards the end of the episode. Like I said, you've got some wind disturbance to deal with on the way there, but I would definitely recommend sticking around through the end of our conversation. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Chris Adlam. Thanks for listening to Life with Fire podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, well, hey, I'm uh, Chris Adlam. I'm a regional fire specialist for Southwest Oregon. I work with the Oregon State University Extension Fire Program. Cool. And you were telling me that it's only like a, like two years old? Yeah, our program started uh, about two years ago. Uh, yeah, exactly two years ago, really. And, uh, you know, in response to some pretty bad fire years. And um, so the state legislature uh, set up this, this new program with an extension. We have regional specialists all across the state. We have a program manager and a program director. And um, we tackle both statewide and regional issues around fire. And that was why it was made? Yes. I guess extension has been very successful in the past at working with local communities. And as we know, this fire problem uh, is it affects all these communities. It affects different communities in different ways. Um, And so, you know, extension is really well placed at this interface with communities to work with people based on whatever their needs are, based on whatever their goals are to help find solutions to living with fire. And what does that mean your like day-to-day job looks like? <laughs> I'm like, I know that's yeah. a really hard question in this job because literally every day is different, but what does that generally sort of look like for you, I guess? Yeah. So first of all, across the state, like I said, we have a lot of different issues depending on the region and then different specialists have different interests and skills. Uh, For me, my interest is in, especially in Southwest Oregon, is uh, helping to increase the use of fire, of prescribed burns, of cultural burns. Um, That's one of my areas that I uh, emphasize the most because I feel like it's not been something that uh, has there hasn't been a lot of resources for people who are interested in, in using controlled burns, right? Private landowners, um, even agencies, um, and so that's one of the things I, I try to do. So we have, for example, a prescribed burn association. I'm helping out with uh, with that, doing some burn planning and education for private landowners around uh, prescribed burns. Uh, I work with um, forest collaboratives and uh, tribes, uh, a lot of different groups like that. So uh, yeah, my day-to-day can look pretty different, right? Mm -hmm. Some days it's a lot of Zoom and some writing and creating educational materials and pamphlets and publications. And then some days it's going out in the field and talking with people about what fire could look like in a certain area and how they can work together with you know, their neighbors and agencies that get that done. Yeah. As you're like speaking, especially with like landowners, are there any sort of misconceptions that you see a lot with, with folks? Like maybe that this is like a really complicated, well, it can be complicated, but like maybe that this is a really like scary process or a really like complicated process or anything like that. You know, it's a selective thing, right? The people who come to me are probably oh, that's not true. the people who are the most 
concerned about you know having everybody has questions but uh so i my experience is that a lot of people want to do it want to learn more about controlled burns want to learn about how uh fire can fit into their management goals um but they haven't they don't have models for that right they right. don't see that around them uh so that's that's the thing is that even people who want to do it they just don't know what it looks like totally i mean from from how a burn is organized you know logistically you know you start at the top of the unit you work your way down that sort of thing all the way to how to get a permit and um you know how to navigate the liability and risk management all of this stuff so people just want to do it they just don't know how and um and then you you know at the same time, you got other situations that are, are really specific and interesting. We got uh, ranchers in some parts of Southwest Oregon and um, in Douglas County specifically use fire and have done for generations. And um, you know that's that that's that. So each audience is very different, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know sometimes working with members of say the the Siletz and Grand Ronde tribe who. Uh, this is the Aboriginal homelands uh, of those tribes uh, here in Southwest Oregon, um, and uh, as well as the Cow Creek tribe, and then uh, some other tribes out on the coast. And so, working with you know cultural fire practitioners, uh, that's that's of course a whole other uh, mm -hmm. scene, right? With people who have an ancestral connection to to fire use in this area, going back you know to time immemorial. So. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I'm going to dig more into that in a little bit, but I would love for you to tell me where we're at right now and what we're what we're looking at here. Yeah, so we're out here in the Ashland watershed uh, at the uh, Wonder Trail, and uh, the Ashland watershed is pretty much renowned nationally as an area that's come a long way in terms of the use of fire um, and of uh, forest health man. Uh, you know, back in the in the in the nineties and early two thousands, there were conversations happening about how to make this watershed healthier, and uh, there were a lot of concerns at the time around uh, thinning and the removal of trees. Um, and as you can see, where, right where we are is an area that had commercial thinning done, right? And yeah. so people actually did come together and you know fits and starts a little bit uh not everybody agreed at the get-go but people sat down and uh, managed to work it out collaboratively and this is something that you know i think in the end everybody was pretty happy about so um you can see that the forest is a lot thinner there are big trees of course you know the big trees are, are, are really one of the priorities to conserve in this watershed for the water quality for the biodiversity um, uh, benefits mm -hmm. and um, and then they've done controlled burns so uh, it looks really it looks really good nice it looks and open. really yeah. nice it totally looks yeah and then there's a trail and so you know people come hiking through here there's a lot of educational work that's getting done just from people walking through these controlled burn units you know and hopefully 
noticing. I hope people notice. I bet some people don't even notice that it's been burnt. You know, it just, it just looks good. You know? It looks good. I feel like they should put like a sign up at the beginning <laughs> that's like, this area has been thinned and burned and this is why yeah. it looks so nice. <laughs> yeah, it looks great. It's like everything's well spaced. I'm seeing like some little, some really mild like fire scarring on the bases of some of these like these dugfers. Yeah, pondos, um, a drone. It's like, it's beautiful. How big is this unit? I've never found the edge of it, so I don't know. It's... Cool. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, a, a lot of, I mean, a lot of burns happen every year in the Ashland watershed. And so when you look at a satellite map, it's just like there's been a lot of burning. And um, it's really made a lot of difference. If, if a wildfire would have happened here, the intensity would definitely be a lot lower than what it would have been before this work was done. Mm -hmm. And so this is effectively, it's protecting the trail, it's protecting the watershed. Maybe it's providing a little bit of a buffer kind of above Ashland. Is that kind of like... Yeah, it, it, it's now for firefighters to come into here, if if a fire starts under extreme weather conditions or, you know, weather conditions where that fire could, could threaten nearby structures, you know, firefighters can come in and uh and control that fire so you know a lot of these treatments were placed with an emphasis on ridge lines and other places like that that made good sense for when firefighters need to come in and and control that fire you don't really want to be sort of halfway up a, a steep slope you know the mm -hmm. ridge line makes is a good place and and then along roads um so they they did a lot of thinking and strategic planning around where to put these treatments because yeah it's not all treated uh, the other side of the road is not treated. Yeah, here. it's like a very clear and, distinction um, here. <laughs> yeah, so it it was done strategically with that in mind. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's like a growing? I, I think Oregon, especially, it feels like there's a really growing understanding and acknowledgement of the importance of fire. Um, do you feel like the like these communities are are kind of like keen on that? And you have a lot of it. Sounds like you have a lot of landowners coming to you for help with that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, so surveys have shown a very high level of support from the community here for what's happening in the Ashland watershed. Um, and generally speaking, across Oregon, surveys find that the vast majority of people support forest thinning and controlled burning. Um, people are very concerned about the loss of forest cover uh, from wildfires over time. And so they, you know, there's a high level of support for this kind of work, um, you know, the thing about Oregon is that we have a lot of different forest types, right? And yeah. we have plenty of forest types in Northwest Oregon where prescribed fire and thinning maybe don't make as much sense, right? And so that can be a complicated nuance for the public, especially people who people who live here, they get it. They understand that this place burns, it's going to burn. And, um, you know, fire has a, is a natural part of the ecosystem. In Northwest Oregon, where most of the population of Oregon lives, things look a little bit different, right? So sometimes we have to have this conversation like, hey, you know, really, if you look at a map, all of Eastern Oregon pretty much and all of Southwest Oregon is dry forest. But where all the decisions are made and where most of the people live is kind of moist, coastal, you know, mm -hmm. moist forest. And so they, things, issues are, are different there, right? And mm -hmm. so that's a conversation we keep having. Yeah. In regions. And I can imagine having started presumably after the 2020 fires if i'm if my math is right here on the two-year thing we, we started right when the fires were yeah yeah so down. i feel like that was like a reminder to everybody that even the west slope of the cascades even the wetter areas can mm -hmm. be impacted by fire i yeah. don't know 
I don't know if you could comment on that at all and like how maybe that went into the decision making. I guess you had already started the process of or you guys had already started the process of starting the extension at that point of like the 2020 fires. But like, I guess, are you seeing more buy in, I guess, from the folks that from the folks in Northwest Oregon and from the folks who live in those maybe like logging sort of centric rural communities? Yeah, I I think that people realize that something needs to happen. People realize that these forests will burn. People understand fire risk pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's finding solutions that match the ecology mm-hmm. and the local culture in different parts of the state. That's the real challenge. That's where the rubber hits the road, right? Right. Down here, we work with all different communities. And one of the communities I've really enjoyed working with is the the town of Butte Falls. Uh And, uh, you know, Butte Falls is an old logging community that after the timber wars, you know, they they lost a lot of their economy. And, uh, you know, you used to be able to get a, a good wage, good paying job. Uh, there and and uh, things really changed after that well since then they've started the this community forest project and in the last couple of years they've been able to purchase land all around the town and for a picnic brunch. yeah <laughs> oh hi bud hey. oh hello say hi what a cute Huh? Michiganders? I'm a Michigander. Yeah, yeah, from Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, I'm from the I'm from northern lower Michigan, but I went to school in the UP. Oh, okay. At, nice. at, uh, at, at oh, MU. forestry school there? There's a really good forestry program there, right? Um, At MTU there is, at Michigan oh. Tech, yeah. Oh. I went to Northern Michigan University oh. and did not get a forestry degree. However, oh. it would have been great to have gotten one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we're right, recording a podcast episode right now about... Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, don't be sorry <laughs> oh, at all. I love this. Sorry. I love it. Um, we're recording a podcast episode about kind of fire and this this oh. like beautiful um, burn unit up above us here, yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah. So just chatting a bit about forestry, actually. Actually, that totally does open up the land so much prettier after you know the lower thing burned off. I don't know how many years ago, but it's kind of prettier now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, yeah. it yeah, looks you great. Like the way it looks. Yeah, yeah, I do. I love it. Yeah, right up on the other side of that hill, there's some really big boulders that stand mm. out so well because there's nothing around it. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you live in Ashland? I do. Cool. I do. I retired and then moved to Ashland. Awesome. My doggy and I are up here. Yeah. This is four times a week. Oh my gosh. It's such a beautiful morning for a walk. It is. It <laughs> like is. driving up the road, I was like, oh, it feels like fall. Fall is hit fully. All those hundred degree days we had a week ago are totally in the rear view mirror. Yeah. Now. Totally So you know, when they're doing controlled burns up here, does it ever is do you do you not do you notice that? Do you, oh, yeah. do you oh, get yeah. smoke yeah. down in town or uh, never got much smoke. I, I freaked out because I saw the fire and I went, what the? <laughs> you know, so I freaked out about it. And by the time I got to the point where I could tell anybody, you know, somebody told me it was a control burn. Okay. And all the, no, I'm, I'm always good with that. I'm, I'm yeah. more than happy with the control burns or any of the forestry management kind of things. It's a good thing. Yeah. That's you know, great to hear. I don't want to hear about all the, you know, um, the fuel building up and creating big bigger fires we don't want that yeah absolutely yeah, we've, we've learned about that in the last few years yes, haven't yeah. we so <laughs> my house is 
my house is literally, literally across a small street from the Sisiku Forest. So mm. I'm very sensitive to that. <laughs> yeah. Have there been any really like big fires in the last decade up up in Ashland oh, yeah. specifically? Well, the Alameda fire in Talent was two years ago. Oh, right. And geez, if the wind had been turned just a little bit to the south, Ashland wouldn't be here. It really wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it tore through Talent and pretty much destroyed uh, a good part of that town. So yeah, we're, we're sensitive to that. Wow. The last big fire, and before that, there was a fire in, I think, 57? Going back in the 20s, I guess. I know, that was the yeah. Siskiyou fire that burnt that, um, what, kind of on the on the south side above Tolman Creek there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, up on the ridge. Uh-huh. And I think it did burn down a few houses. But, uh, yeah, and I think that was one where that was really a wake-up call for the fire chief because mm-hmm. he was on that fire and he saw how it went up this hill and then it hit an area that had been thinned and it just uh-huh. mellowed out right yeah, away. Yeah, and yeah. and he, when he saw that, this was 10 years ago, he was like, this is what we need to do nice. you know, everywhere. Nice, yeah. So. Yeah, it's nice when people that need to see that stuff see yeah. that stuff working. Well, <laughs> That's he's awesome. Our best advocate, you know. Cool. Chris Chambers. Are you in the fire department? Uh, I work with OSU Extension uh, with Uh their fire program. So I do educational uh, programming around fire. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Cool. Cool. But it's good to hear from you about about you know how you how you see this. I love it. People in Ashland, it seems really support this kind of work. Hundred percent. Everybody I've run into just a hundred percent. Yeah. And maybe maybe 20 years ago you'd have found somebody no leave nature to nature but yeah. not anymore yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right guys i won't okay. interrupt your podcast further <laughs> oh it was wonderful chatting with you though yeah. great to great to chat a bit about yeah. <laughs> about fire well, in this area upper, uh, us upper midwesterners have to get together <laughs> yeah no kidding no kidding <laughs> have a good one. <laughs> oh, that's awesome so can you tell me a bit about what those educational resources look like and kind of like not only that, but maybe like some recommendations for other communities or other regions in terms of what's working for you and what's, um, yeah, I guess what's working. Yeah, you know, for us, uh, we've been, for example, working on this series, this publication series uh, called Introduction to Prescribed Fire. And uh, it's... Uh, Oh, actually, it's not called that. It's called Prescribed Fire Basics. My bad, yeah. Terry. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it explains to people, you know, how, how a prescribed burn works all the way from, you know, the planning to the implementation and monitoring. So uh, people have really enjoyed that. Uh, publication series because before there just, there just wasn't anything about that in Oregon. If you you know you could go and Google and find something, but we didn't have anything specific to Oregon. So um, you know we we do things like that, and then we we organize workshops. We do um, you know uh, uh, classes, virtual, in person, hybrid, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of those things that we do nowadays. And uh, what kind of classes? Uh, I'm, I'm planning like right now, a, a burn planning class for landowners to write their own burn plans, for example. Um, and then using that to connect people to the prescribed burn association. So, you know, if landowner wants to burn, they can 
come and we'll we'll talk about how to write a burn plan and I'll I'll coach them through that and then once they have their burn plan complete then the prescribed burn association can um, help them implement their burn so yeah that's that kind of thing um, we've done workshop series you know seminar series on wildfire uh, all aspects of wildfire, you know, including defensible space and home hardening and uh, community level preparedness. Um, cool. So yeah, we do we do all sorts of stuff. Cool. And this is something I actually don't think I've had like explicitly laid out. Maybe in a single episode. Of course, everybody talks about it kind of in their own ways. But what does that community level resilience sort of look like to you? Between defensible mm-hmm. space, like you can just literally lists like one of your resources or one of your education resources. Like this is what defensible space looks like, like, you know, a hundred foot buffer or whatever, like don't have logs, don't have firewood underneath your porch, like um, to whatever extent you want to talk about that individual and then community resilience. Yeah. You know, I think that the specifics in terms of doing defensible space are pretty well understood. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, nothing flammable within five feet of your structure, um, you know, 30 feet out, you want to keep everything kind of lean and green, as they say, remove the dead material and then thin vegetation out to 100 feet or 200 feet, depending on the topography and other factors like that. But, you know, the thing that's really tricky is that there's only so much that people can do individually. And so to me, the community level really comes in when people can support one another in getting this work done. I mean, we're all interdependent. And if you take a neighborhood and all of these houses are 100 feet apart or less, then they're literally within each other's defensible space. That means that, as we have seen, unfortunately, if one structure starts to burn, then everything downwind is probably going to go, no matter how good your defensible space was. So it's not good enough to just have, you know, your structure be defensible. You need the entire neighborhood to be properly taken care of, you know? And so people need to come together. We have programs like Firewise program that's run by our, uh, well, here it's run by ODF, the Oregon Department of Forestry. And that's a way that people can come together and educate themselves and uh, gather resources to help one another, you know, and the Prescribed Burn Association is another example of, you know, people learning about fire and working together to achieve their goals, the things that they couldn't do just by themselves. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think we talk a lot. I talk a lot about community level resilience. And sometimes I don't know what that means, especially like, I mean, I know that it means like supporting uh, units like this, supporting like the local uh, organizations and agencies that are doing good work um, and maybe talking to your neighbors about it and doing the defensible space in your own, in your own neighborhood. But, um, what are some things that people can do to advocate for greater resilience in their communities? Like, especially in places where maybe these resources aren't as widely available or as widely sort of, um, out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing that I've seen has been very effective is, you know, community groups forming, um, we've had forest collaboratives for a while, you know, in, in Oregon, and some of them have been very successful. Um, but the focus of forest collaboratives has been largely on public lands most of the time, mm-hmm. right? Um, but now we're also seeing these 
smaller collaboratives that are popping up. Like here we have uh, the Illinois Valley Forest Restoration Organizing Group, and we have uh, an Applegate Valley Fire and Fuels Group, you know. Um, in, in California, they have fire safe councils, that sort of thing. And these community groups are getting together and they're talking about how to reach, how to reach landowners and how to make sure people hear about grant opportunities and improving communication with fire response agencies and public entities. Um, and those groups, I think, are, are really interesting to me because, again, it's about organizing communities to get these resources uh, to where they need to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is just something I've been thinking about a lot living in Bellingham, which doesn't really have that like understand. I mean, not understanding. I think people understand fire, but like, I don't think that there's a wide acknowledgement that with climate change and with more fuel loading and with very, very little fire in Whatcom County, especially in the North Cascades, like we're seeing more fires up in the North Cascades kind of on like the, you know, in like more remote areas. But I just I worry about the lack of um, of fire's presence and everyone's sort of consciousness up there. And so just trying to like figure out ways to not be alarmist, but to be, you know, at least proactive about thinking about fire in those in those landscapes. So um, so that's helpful to hear that. But yeah. any thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> you know, it's the blessing and the curse of being in this dry forest environment is that um, fire used to be very frequent right here about every eight years was oh, the wow. fire return interval historically um and still today we see you know a lot of fire uh compared to other parts of the state so people are aware of uh the fire danger and so a lot of people here are motivated to do something about it it's true that you go to these moisture forests that don't burn as frequently you know labor day fires notwithstanding um it gets more difficult to motivate people to be sort of at that kind of emergency response level all the time, right? People yeah. kind of, I mean, people have all sorts of things going on, right? I mean, Absolutely. It's, you know, you have a lot of different priorities. Um, fire, dealing with fire is only one of a million things that people have on their minds, you know? <laughs> and um I think we need to remember that because sometimes, you know, fire professionals can be like, why aren't people doing the thing? Why aren't they reducing risk? And it's like, because they have jobs and, and they have kids, families. Yeah. <laughs> they have, you know, animals and they have land and they have just all sorts of things going on. Right. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a puzzle uh, for these places where we don't know. There might be a fire next year. There might be a fire in 20 years. It might be a fire in 50 years. We don't know. But um, it, with climate change, it's definitely looking like 50 years might be a tops. Uh-huh. Absolutely. So you mentioned pods earlier. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So pods is a system that's been used here in the Ashland watershed to prioritize where to do treatments uh, on the landscape. So it means potential operational delineations. And it, to me, it's a very interesting uh, development because it integrates the response to wildfires and preventative treatments. You know, it makes all the sense in the world that these two things should be connected, right? You should be doing your treatments where it's going to matter most to people responding to wildfires. 
and or where it's going to facilitate future uh, prescribed fire use, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what it does is it looks at places on the landscape that will be strategic areas to control fire. So ridgelines along roads, along other natural fire breaks like rivers. And, um, and then you can create these units, basically, these uh, sort of mini fire sheds. Uh, and those are, those are the pods. And so then you can go and treat the, the boundaries of these pods in, in priority, putting in the, your thinning and controlled burn treatments there so that if a fire starts within a certain pod, then you can uh, use those features to, to control it. Or, you know, again, you can start the fire deliberately under the right conditions to do larger scale controlled burns. Uh, and then the other thing that it does is that when we look at these pods across a landscape, we'll see that some of them are you know, if a fire starts in certain pods right next to a town, let's say, you don't have much of a choice but to go put that fire out, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can't let fires burn right next to homes. But we understand that one of the best solutions to wildfire is wildfire. I mean, it's previous wildfires. You look at what's going on in a lot of places in dry forests. The first thing that people look at when a fire starts is where's the nearest previous burn? Right. That's the first thing people look at. And they're like, OK, well, this this fire started in an area that hasn't burned in a long time. This is going to be a big problem. Or it started, you know, in an area that's had previous wildfire It's probably going to be self-limiting. You know, mm -hmm. so now with the pod system, you can say, OK, here's some areas where maybe if a fire starts, we don't go direct and try to put it out of the smallest acreage possible. Like maybe it's an opportunity to actually let that fire go to the boundary with the previous wildfire or go to the edge of that pod and kind of have some wildland fire use out of it. Totally. Yeah. Let's talk about wildland fire use a little bit and, and how we, and how that's almost how we do our landscape level yeah. resilience measures. Like, and, and maybe talk a little bit about <clears throat> maybe like the public perception of it or, um, I would just like to hear your your thoughts on on how managed fire can be used for some of this resilience. Yeah, well, I'm sort of an academic, so it's easy for me to say this, but <laughs> I don't have to make any decisions on the ground. So, right, that's the caveat. But um, right now, we know that wildfire is doing most of the treatments on the landscape for us. Most of the fuels reduction is done by wildfire. You know, a lot of area burnt in wildfire is not destroyed, you know, and not lost, as you might see in sometimes in in, uh, uh, in the news media or other publications. Uh, but sometimes we get really beneficial effects out of wildfires, right? Um, and in fact, especially when these fires burn during mild weather conditions on the shoulder seasons, we're getting effects that are very similar to prescribed fire. Um, and yet we put those fires out. So as a result, we're forcing fire to burn basically during the most horrendous weather conditions in the middle of summer when it's hot, dry, and windy. So this isn't sustainable, right? Um, and there's going to be fire on the ground one way or the other, and we need to be prepared for that. So ideally with systems like pods and by putting our treatments in strategic areas, uh, we can increase managers' ability to you know go indirect on these fires and you know monitor them and get some use out of them um, mm -hmm. 
rather than just always trying to put fires out, which is not only dangerous and a risk of or a waste of resources, it's actually counterproductive and causing fuels to build up and then the future future wildfires to get even worse. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> I saw that they did um, like a couple thousand acres of of, uh, of burning out, I guess, or of a, of a burn operation, mm-hmm. firing operations on the Queer Creek fire um, over the Creek. last, yeah. or Cedar Creek fire mm-hmm. over the last few days. And um, I just saw somebody on Twitter that was commenting on it and and it was kind of like, uh, I, I just felt like it was a really good example of like, yeah, like put some fire on the ground. Like we're getting rain. Yeah. Like even if it's not, you know, like I said on the Twitter post I did or on the tweet, I didn't I didn't know what their objectives were. But I was like, as far as I can tell, like it's pretty good stroke to just get a couple thousand acres of fire on the ground yeah, which, when it's going to rain. <laughs> out of a, a fire that's 100,000 acres plus, that's nothing. What right? is 2,000 acres? Yes. But 2,000 acre burn unit, like actually yeah. putting that on the ground as a prescribed fire is a big deal. That's yeah. a lot of... I don't know that we'd be able, we wouldn't be able to flat out in that terrain. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so that was just a good example of like... Um, yeah, I thought that was just a great example of like, yeah, we've we're seeing like the next four days are going to be mm-hmm. cold and mild and rainy, and I don't know what their like I said, I don't know what their objectives were, but I was like, it's kind of cool to see that we're <laughs> we're able yeah. to get some more fire on the ground. And you brought something up about how people see this, and it's true that there is definitely uh, there are a lot of people who are critical or have questions about doing firing operations, um, and. I think that it would be great if we could just open up this conversation uh-huh. and not treat it like it's, you know, taboo. I think there are people who don't want to talk about it. They're happy kind of doing it maybe under the radar and they don't want a lot of attention on it. And it's true that with things getting politicized so fast nowadays, you know, it's true that you maybe maybe that is wise. Um, but I think communities need to be involved in this conversation, too, which, again, to me, the pods thing is really cool because you can have community and community members involved in this conversation. Like you say, hey, what what happens if a fire starts here? What are we going to do? What happens if it starts here under mild conditions? What happens if it starts here under extreme conditions? Where are the places we could control that fire? Where are the places we could put more fire on the ground? And then it's an educational process. It's like, this is how fire response works. You know, we'll have people going out here. These are the tactics they use. One of the tactics is firing operations. Here's how it can be really helpful. Here are the risks, you know, and educating people about that. And, and then not just educating them, but having them be involved in the process. Like people have local knowledge of the landscape. They remember, you know, oh, yeah, 30 years ago, there was a fire out here and they stopped it over here. You know, people know that kind of thing. Right. And um, so, you know, relying on that local knowledge uh, to have this conversation, I think that we, we are running to the limits of this professionalized response to fire where it's been like, leave the professionals to do all this work. Everybody get out of the way with, you know, sending in the, the big guns and um, they're going to take care of it. No questions, please. You know, mm-hmm. like that's kind of... We're getting to the limits of what we can do with that model, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I find I do find it funny you mentioned like it feeling taboo or like it's almost like kind of like like shrouded in secrecy mm-hmm. that we're that these firing operations are sometimes our best method of, of of containing certain parts of fires or or also good ways to get fire on the ground. And yeah, I just wonder like how long it's gonna take for us to like turn it into an educational opportunity. And have it be more kind of out in the open 
and have and hopefully start really encouraging people to think about the ways that it's that it's very beneficial to get whatever fire we can on the landscape. And especially if the managers are seeing certain conditions and are like, okay, this is this is a really good day to do this. Like we're not going to today. You know, you mentioned earlier that the ground is pretty wet. The grass is wet. Um, Maybe not the best day to burn. I don't know. But um, but yeah, just. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I've seen a lot of folks saying like, you know, we're burning off all this land and like we're not the public isn't being made aware of it. And and there's a lot of there's a little bit of controversy there, I think. And and it would be it would be interesting to know how we can bring those people in and help and help them understand the benefits of it. And also like the, the, the diminished risk to firefighters in doing those kinds of strategies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that with prescribed fire, you know, we've seen this shift from it's just for professionals and you need all sorts of fancy qualifications to be able to do it to, hey, let's educate landowners, you know, and recognize that landowners have been practicing this this method of, of reducing fuels for a long time and indigenous communities and ranching communities and so on, you know, so recognizing that it's not just this thing that's for professionals and that everybody can have a part in it right and you know i think that we may and i don't know see that happening with response to wildfire as well like some of it is incredibly technical right you look at what these imts are doing on fires and um wow i mean a lot of skill and experience and knowledge goes into that and uh, a very advanced tools and technology so 100 percent. but also like people are People, you know, we can't just lock people out of this conversation all the time. So maybe there's a time and a place for it. And maybe it's not all the time and everywhere, but there'll be a time when we can bring people into this conversation, I think. Um, And, uh, you know, how do we prepare for this? How to get people to understand what's happening when firefighters go out there? It's very disempowering to people who are in the area. They're told to leave. And then all of these things are happening. They don't know what's happening. I mean, PIOs do a fantastic job of trying to get the word out, but you know, people people just feel really disempowered, I think. And that's part of then the trauma moving forward uh, for people is, is how little control they have over their environment. So I think that getting people involved in taking a look at this landscape ahead of time and understanding what all the options are, what happens if a fire starts here and there and under these different conditions and why do firefighters do this and why do they do that? And, and getting their input is a way to not only get better results on the land, but also, you know, help people move through this difficult time. We're going to see more and more fires, more and more communities burn down. I hate to say it, but it's just a fact. And so we need people to be empowered to the degree that we can, you know, achieve that. All right, y'all, that is what we have for you today. I told you it was worthwhile to stick around. Hopefully you did. That whole conversation was super fun to have, but Chris really saved some gems for the last few minutes of the of the conversation. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed this one. And if you really liked it, I would highly recommend sharing it with somebody else who you think might enjoy it or otherwise maybe subscribing to the podcast or leaving us a review. Uh, we also have a Patreon if you'd like to support us financially. That's just patreon.com slash lifewithfirepod. We will also have that linked in our episode's show notes, as well as some links to the OSU Fire Extension and a bit of the work that Chris has done in the past. So check that out for a few more resources. And otherwise, uh, thank you for listening to this episode, and we will catch you on the next one.